chapter 1. You know, all of us are supposed to be growing in the Lord, conforming to the image of Christ more and more. We should be involved more and more in the ministry of the Lord. But I find that so many Christians fail to apply God's Word to their financial affairs. Now, the song we just sang, Speak to Us, Lord. Well, He has. It's up to us to want to listen. 1 Peter 2.2 says that we're to desire the milk of the Word like a baby desires the bottle. Babies are pretty unhappy if they don't get fed. We ought to have that kind of desire to learn what God has to say to us. Uh, Hopefully, I'm going to speak this morning about personal finances and principles from the Bible about personal finances. And I'm hoping that a lot of these verses will be familiar to you. And so this will be somewhat of a review, and perhaps you'll look at some of these verses in a new way. Uh, But... uh, these are, these are principles that will help you be successful financially. Principle number one is to get your financial principles from the Scriptures. You know, we read the newspaper to find out what's going on. We, read, we subscribe to magazines, money magazines, other kind of magazines. We get on the Internet. We do a lot of research about financial matters and how to invest, and so forth. And the world's got a lot to say about these things. But you know, so does the Bible. We just need to study it. The Lord didn't really leave us ignorant uh, or powerless to manage our financial affairs. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and He gave us His Scriptures to, to guide us, and the Holy Spirit to guide us into that truth, which is what John sixteen thirteen says, the Holy Spirit's to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit will always lead biblically. He'll never lead opposed to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Scriptures are alive. That is, they're living. Some people think, well, the Bible's written thousands of years ago. What, how, that, how could that apply today? But it's a living book. It's, the fact is, it's the only book that I know of that's been written so long ago, it still tells the truth for today just as effectively as it did 2,000 years ago. Uh, How about science books? What are they like? I mean, you you don't have to go back very far, and you find out that what science was teaching is wrong. And I mean, this has happened over and over and over and over and over again, yet people don't get it. I mean, they they look at science as having the answers. Science keeps getting revised. The Bible doesn't really need revision. Because it's God's Word, and God's Word is true, and it's truth. Uh, It also says that it's effective. The the Greek word there, speaking of the the Word God being uh, uh, alive and effectual, uh, the Greek word there is energetic, energies. powerful enough to accomplish things. Psalm 1830 says this, As for God, His way is perfect. Can you get any better than that? His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. No, you can never go wrong doing it God's way. 
You'll never go wrong doing it the Bible way if you know what the Bible way is. Uh, in fact, is it was Second Peter chapter one. I want you to go to Second Peter chapter one. Look what the Lord has to say here, starting in verse two. Peter says, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God." and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Skip down to verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3 there. We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. That means we have everything we need in this life. We have everything we need to prosper financially. We have everything we need to pay our bills properly. We have everything we need to balance our checkbooks. We have everything we need to be happy. Where do these things come from? Notice in all three of those verses, it mentions knowledge. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of what? God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, he says, through the knowledge of him who called us. Verse 8, he says, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So where do we get knowledge about God? From the Bible. I don't know of any other book that's as thorough at teaching us what God is like and is dependable, proven, perfect. Uh, the knowledge comes from the Bible. So you can have grace and peace about your financial affairs to the extent that you have the knowledge of the Bible. We need to learn its precepts. We need to live by them. We need to practice it. We need to make the Bible our rule of faith and practice. We need to believe what it says, practice it, and he promises we'll prosper. Joshua 1.8 mentions prospering as we meditate on his word. Nothing you do, no business, no shopping, no investing, nothing will have a greater financial impact in your financial life than the measure by which you obey the scriptures. Now, the Bible says that the Lord is the one who gives us the power to get wealth. And I'm not suggesting by that, that that wealth is our life goal. It is to many. Uh, but that's not the Christian's life's goal. That, that's the in, incidental part. That's the part that God provides for us to fulfill our responsibilities to our families and to Him. Uh, but it's God that gives the power to get that. Uh, Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know, here's God that gave us the Bible. He also gave his son. Now, that's a pretty costly gift, don't you think? You think about it, what the most is you've ever spent for a gift for someone. It doesn't begin to compare to God offering his son. 
And if he's willing to make that kind of sacrifice for us, how much more is he willing to give us everything we need? But we've got to follow his plan to have everything we need. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What more could we want in this life? Pleasure? I mean, most everybody in the world seeks pleasure one way or another. They think money will get them there. But that's not the answer. It's at the Lord's right hand. You know, if you want a sure road to failure, just ignore the Bible and your financial affairs. That's, that's a guaranteed failure in any aspect of your life, is to ignore God's Word. So come to His Scriptures for your financial principles. Be as voracious about seeking and desiring and learning what God has to say about financial matters as you are about learning what the, 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 uh, the, the guy on the TV or the guy that wrote the magazine article or, or the one who, who, who publishes articles on the Internet all the time. I don't know what you subscribe to and I don't know what you read for your information. But none of the, all of those should pale in comparison to the desire you have to learn for God's Word and how to apply it in your life. Principle number two. Four-letter word. Work. Work. You know, God ordained work from the very beginning. Almost the very beginning. In the beginning, God. It didn't start that quite that early. But when man fell and sinned, immediately God ordained that he should spend his time at work. I mentioned earlier how much time I've spent in the ministry as a volunteer, really, for my almost my whole life. There was that 38 years that I was actually paid. I think one of the one of the uh, difficulties for me to get over it going into the ministry is I just couldn't I couldn't understand uh, I couldn't uh, enjoy the thought of getting my paycheck out of the offering plate because that belonged to God. But it is God's will that those who serve in the ministry should live of the gospel and be paid that way. Uh, but God ordained work, um, and certainly that keeps man out of trouble. Acts twenty thirty three. Paul writes, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way that by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. Paul said with his own hands, he supported himself. He also supported those who were with him. He didn't just make enough for himself. And he also says here he supported the weak. Now, we need to be careful about supporting the weak. He didn't say he supported the poor. Now, some people are poor for a reason. And it's their unholy living. And for us to, to, to enable that to continue would not bring glory to God. Or for us to, to have people that are, that are poor and who take advantage of people with a great heart and, and laugh and mock at them 
doesn't bring glory to the Lord. We need to be careful who we do our benevolence with. It's not that we shouldn't care, but we ought to do it scripturally. He says in Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now tell me, why do people steal? We think, well, it's because they want something. And we think, you know, the bad thing about stealing is it takes it away from someone else. But you know, from God's perspective, it's saying, I'm not willing to wait for God to provide something. I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm not willing to do it God's way, which is to work for it. I'm going to go take it from somebody else who's worked for it. So we're flying in the face of character of God when we steal something. We can't steal and be blessed to the Lord, whether it's on our tax return or whether it's from an employer or a neighbor or whatever. We've got to be honest and, and work for what we need and for what our families need and for what our Christian brothers and sisters need in the Lord if they have some legitimate weaknesses that, that don't enable them to earn what they need. Uh, we are to be helpers in, in, in that matter. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 He says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. A few verses later, it mentions, Don't be weary in well-doing. Recall that verse? That was in this context of working to, to meet our needs. Uh, yeah. We get tired working, don't we? I mean, the Lord did say it'd be the sweat of our brow. He did intend it to be hard, but not impossible. And we should have the character to, to work for what we need and not depend upon others. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven. He says, prepare your work outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field and afterward build your house. You know, I think this work, this verse is teaching us that, that, that work to meet our needs comes before pleasure. I was telling Scott, uh, I, th I think it was Scott I was telling, uh, my grandfather was a farmer. And one July 4th, he, uh, the crop, the crop was ready to, to be taken in. And uh, all the rest of the farmers, young folks, were, were going off together to have a good time together. And, and his children wanted to go join them. And he says, nope, we've got work to do. That might sound a little bit harsh. But they stayed home and took in their crop that day. And that night was a tremendous storm. And all the other farmers lost their crop. They had their pleasure, but they failed in their work. Then dad's family granddad's family had what they needed they were they put work first then they could take the time off it didn't have to be a holiday right we can make a holiday whenever we want one but it ought to be after the work is done the work ought to come first our american culture is given to entertainment and pleasure that's not biblical there's nothing wrong with entertainment and pleasure the right kind anyway 
God expects us to have some pleasure and some entertainment, but that shouldn't be the focus of our life. You've heard of TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. You know why they come up with that saying? Because I'm done with work for the week. Now I can go have fun and play. Well, that's really not a good attitude. You know, we ought to enjoy our work. I, I enjoyed the, 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 the fun and laughter here this morning. We were setting up and getting started and, and, and so forth. We, we should enjoy everything that we do and, and receive pleasure from it, but we shouldn't make pleasure the centerfold of our life and work is just something to endure and get through until I can get to that. That's, that's not a biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is I ought to be serving God but I have responsibility that God gave me to meet the needs of my family, to meet my own needs, and to meet the needs of, of other legitimately needy persons, and to be able to give to the Lord and, and share with His work. And uh, so work enables me to do that, and that comes first. And then comes the, the, the pleasure. Working, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing biblical about an eight-hour day. I'm sure some of you work more than eight hours. I worked a lot more than eight hours when I was going to school, paying my way through college, worked in the nighttime, worked in the daytime, worked on Saturdays, worked on weekends. I'd come home for Christmas. They wanted me to go to work or come home for the summer, and I worked and work, 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 work. But I accomplished something important. Accomplish what God had for me in my life. Excuse me, my pillow alarm's going off, but that's got to wait for lunch. Uh, when you think of working, don't just think in terms of, okay, I go to work, I put in my eight hours, now I get to take my evening off. You know, you do that every evening, day after day, week after week, year after year. You think how much time you lose. We're supposed to redeem the time. Come home, maybe that's time to repair the car or paint the house, you know, or fix that broken appliance. You can learn to do those things. When our family was starting out in the ministry, I tell you, things were austere. But my wife cooked from scratch. We didn't buy things already prepared at the store. Fact is, we didn't even, we didn't even buy typically Cokes and chips and, and these other sorts of things that, that the average person enjoys because they didn't really meet the goal of the nutrition needs of the family. So you not only had to buy that, you still had to buy the other. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't subscribe to anything. She sewed their kids' clothes. I roofed the house, repaired the car, fixed the hot water heater and the refrigerator and the air conditioner. Uh, it just seemed like it was work, 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 work. Well, a man's supposed to bear the bear the burden in his youth, right? It should come a day if you do it right up front that that shouldn't be so necessary. At least that's what I've found in my life. So don't feel entitled to sit down and be a couch potato every night when you get home from work. Use your time productively. It will pay you eternal dividends really, to do so. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody go out and get a second job. You know, sometimes that's necessary because 
we're responsible to provide for ourselves. That's what Paul was talking about. The second job takes you away from your family. That ought to be something that's short duration, specific need to get taken care of. Uh, but family can work together. Uh, I've got a picture in my picture album I just love. My daughters hate it, but I, but I love it. It's the four of them with paintbrushes doing the garage door. You know, we work together on some things. Uh, they even helped me do roof the house one time. Uh, of course, the roof was not far off the ground in the back, so it wasn't too bad if they, you know, ro- rolled off the roof. But uh, we worked together. When I went on visitation, take my kids with me. Uh, serve God together. Principle number three. Honor the Lord financially. Honor the Lord financially. You know, Leviticus 27.30 says the tithe is the Lord's. The tithe is the tenth part. Ten percent. The tithe is the Lord's. It's already His. You know, everything we have is His, isn't it? And by teaching us that we ought to be giving Him at least the tithe, He's allowing us the opportunity to show our faith in Him that I believe God can bless me with 90% that I don't have to keep everything for myself to meet my needs. I can trust the Lord. I've been a tither since I was in high school. Every job I've ever had. And much more, even during the austere times. But the Lord honored that. He blessed that. And He provided I didn't have to be selfish with what I had to be able to meet our needs. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Notice that we're to honor the Lord with the first fruits. He ought to be the first one. We get that paycheck, that's the first check we ought to write. Is this is God's part. Take that out of the picture. You know, all of us, uh, I say all of us, in general, people spend what they make. You know that? If they make this much, they may spend this much or this much. If they get a raise, then their standard of living goes up to meet it. They get another raise or a better job or promotion and their standard of living goes higher. We don't have to to live at the standard of living of every last penny that we make. That's that's our choice. We can choose to drive an older car uh, or to live in a little smaller house or to to, uh, do things together as a family that aren't really expensive. We have choices. We have the discretion to make those kinds of choices. We can honor the Lord with our first fruits and give Him first, and with His blessings, we'll do more with that 90% that's left than otherwise. I think 90% is the starting place. We've always given more, much more, than the 10%. And God has, He has wonderfully blessed that in our lives. If you don't give generously to God, you cannot expect Him to give you more. Now, if you're going to invest somewhere, you want a good return, don't you? And if God invests in us, He expects us to use what we have for Him. 
And if we don't do that, you think we were a good investment for God to, 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 to provide some more? I don't think so. I, I wouldn't invest in a, in a place that gave me a poor return or wouldn't even give me back, which was mine. You know, it seems impossible, but the, the Christian life is a life of paradoxes. Have you noticed that? The greatest Christian is a servant. The Bible tells us that if we save our lives, we'll lose it. If we lose our life for him, we'll save it. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days it'll return. He says, give, and it shall be given unto you. You know, the Lord, if we will just trust what he says and do things his way and be willing to be generous and share and work hard so that we can cover all these necessities, the Lord will take care of us. We don't have to be concerned about it. We don't have to be frustrated about it. I do want to remind you, though, that I have never found in Scripture anywhere that it was that we should take the tithe, which Leviticus says belongs to the Lord, and give it to others for their needs. You know, in the U.S., we have a Congress. They always overspend. You know why they do that? They're not spending their own money. They're spending my money. They wouldn't overspend if they're spending their money. We need to be careful we don't spend God's money. We ought to give it to Him and let Him choose where that gift's spent. Principle number four. Be truthful to your creditors. Be truthful to your creditors. John 4.24 says, Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You know, if I commit to a debt, Say a mortgage payment, do the first. Or a rent contract, do the first. And there's a grace period, the fifth or the tenth. You know, you don't get slapped on your hand if, as long as you get it in by the grace period. If I'm truthful and I promise that I'd have it there on the first, I need to have it there on the first. God is a God of truth. Those who serve Him must be truthful people. We can't take advantage of others and have God's blessings on our life. We make commitments. We need to keep those commitments and keep them to, at least to the level of what we've committed to keep. Our personal finances ought to be a godly testimony. We say we represent the Lord. What does our creditors think about the Lord if they look at our life and they know we're a Christian? You know, it's a sad thing. When I, when I left the church where I'd served for 38 years, I hired a man to take my place, uh, or at least I recommended the man to take my place. Good, godly man, perfect choice for the job. He used, he used to work formerly for a big tire company, nationwide tire company. And when he went to work there, they put him working with accounts receivable, collecting money from the people that they had sold tires to on credit. And the first day on, uh, on the job, his boss told him, beware of the three Ps. Painters, plumbers, and preachers. And I thought, what a terrible testimony. What a terrible testimony. Now, that doesn't castigate all three of those categories by any means, but those are the people that they had problems with. 
it shouldn't be that any creditor has any issue with us at all. If I've promised to pay him, I've got to pay him to be blessed of God. I'll never be blessed to take advantage of somewhere else. The Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. That counts creditors. He's our neighbor, right? I mean, somebody asked the Lord, who's my neighbor? And who was it? Everybody out there, right? Essentially is what Jesus was saying. I need to love my neighbors. I need to treat them the way I would like to be treated myself. <coughs> he wants us to treat people fairly, to pay our debts in full on time and to provide properly for our family. Proverbs 3, 28. Perhaps this is a verse you never really thought about. He says, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Don't say to your neighbor, Go and come back tomorrow. And the neighbor comes and says, Okay, I need to borrow this or I'd like to have this. Don't tell him to come back tomorrow if you've got it. You know, I think that's what we're doing when, we, when the grace period rolls around. We say, okay, uh, here's the first. I'm paid, but I need to set this money aside for groceries and clothes and recreation and other things. And, and I don't have to pay this till the 15th to be not be penalized. So I'll just wait and pay it the 15th. I think we're disobeying this verse to do that. When the creditor says, today's the day, then we ought to say, there's your money. And if that's a problem, it ought to be the us to live with that problem, not our, not our creditor. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say we were supposed to pray for our creditors. Lord, give our creditors faith to pray to you for their daily bread because I'm going to keep this money that I owe them and I'm going to use it by my bread. You know, most of us don't have to pray for our daily bread, do we? Just out of routine course matter, the Lord has provided. We go to the grocery store and we bring home the groceries we need and we load up the refrigerator and the cupboards and we're not having to suffer because everything's bare. But you know, if we're not paying our bills on time and we're filling our cupboards, we've got it backwards. If I really believe God and God says, oh, no man, anything, I will pay those people I owe even if it means my cupboard is bare and I'll trust the Lord to give me my daily bread. He makes a promise that he'll do it. And if we don't want his promise, we want to do it ourselves, we're the loser. We're the loser. We don't have any right to spend on our wants what belongs to someone else. Psalms 37:21 says, The wicked borrows and does not repay. You know, that rules out bankruptcy filing, doesn't it? Might be legal, but it's not spiritual. Abortion's legal. That's not spiritual. You know, there's lots of things that are legal that are not spiritual. Luke 10, 7 says the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know, we try to make excuses for not paying somebody we owe something. We're cheating them out of their rightful due. And God will not bless that. Abraham wasn't that way, was he? He didn't take advantage of anyone. He depended on the Lord. Even when he had to forfeit the most advantage, 
How much time do I got, Scott? Twelve thirty. Okay, very good. Principle number five. Plan your spending with a written budget. Now, this sounds exciting, doesn't it? I don't know anything less exciting than doing a budget. That's that's been an annual chore to do for years. Luke 14:28 says this. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? I expect everybody here has heard that verse before. But isn't that what a budget is? I've got these costs. I'm going to lay them out. Here's when they're due. Here's what my paid income is. Here's when that's coming in. All right, how much is there? Well, if I take care of all these things, I'm obligated. I've got this much that I can spend discretionary on food, clothes, recreation, and whatever. A written budget. Now, it's, it's a financial roadmap, right? Can you imagine traveling somewhere where you've never been before in a distant, far country? You wouldn't think of going without a map. You don't just look at a map and say, okay, I'll remember all this, and now I'm going to do it by memory. No, you take the map with you or your phone, your GPS or what, whatever it is. But we take a written map. Why wouldn't we do that for our financial affairs? Is there any more important aspect of our life that, that, uh, that we should be planning how that should work out? And the planning helps so much. Uh, it helps us with our impulses. You know, it it helps me reach my goals. It helps me make informed decisions. It makes sure I can fill my fulfill my obligations even when I'm busy and not paying attention. It prevents me from overspending and allows me to give the way I should and, and save the way I should because I'm managing what I have instead of just working day to day whatever I feel like today. Principle number six, recognize wastefulness and avoid it. Recognize wastefulness. John chapter six, I believe it's 12 and 13. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? What a wonderful miracle. In fact, as Jesus fed 4,000 and this same kind of uh, talk that Jesus gave afterwards, he says, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the, what is it? Fragments. Are we interested in fragments? Jesus was. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. You know, ladies, leftovers are scriptural, right? Next time your family complains, just remind them of this passage. The Lord told me to take up the fragments and make sure it's not lost. It needs to be used. You know, fragments are little things. Little things add up. They really do. And if the Lord provides for us and we keep wasting here and there, a little bit here, a little bit there, a lot here, a little bit there, a lot here, a little bit there, 
We can lose the ability to fulfill our responsibilities before God just over wastefulness. We have so much, that's why it's so easy to waste. Recognize wastefulness and ignore it. Solomon, Song of Solomon 2.15 says, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. Think about your own life this week. What are the little foxes? It didn't say there was a hurricane. didn't say there was a cyclone. didn't say there was a flood. It wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't a fire that burned the whole field down. It was those little pesky foxes that just kept coming back night after night after night after night and, and, and eating on those crops out there until there just wasn't anything left. They were the ones that spoiled it. And they'll spoil it in your life if you allow it to happen. Pay attention to the fragments. Uh, Twelve baskets full. I think it was seven baskets full after the feeding of the 4,000. And this, this was Jesus who taught that, and he was the one who kept breaking the bread and making as much as he wanted. And he still said, don't let any of it go to waste. Somebody needs this. I don't know what they did with it. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I expect he didn't take it home and throw it out. I expect they went home with some folks who needed it. And they had enough because they took care of the little things. You know, a bucket doesn't take many little holes in the bucket until it won't hold water, right? You might pour water in there and set it aside, but it won't be long and it'll be all gone. Just as sure as if it had a big hole. What kind of little things? You know, I know people that don't pay their bills, but on the way to work every morning, they stop for a donut and a cup of coffee. You add up the cost of that for five years, and what do you think it comes out to? Something significant? Yeah. Buying lunch instead of packing lunch. I mentioned already getting, getting colas and lollies and chips and... By chips, I'm talking about things like uh, taco chips or whatever. What, what potatoes? Okay, uh, pot potato chips, uh, things like that 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 really don't nourish your body, but steal a little bit of your money every time you spend on it. That's a little fox. And there's nothing sinful about having a few chips and a, and a Coca-Cola. It's just that if I can't make ends meet. Those are the kind of things I need to get these little foxes out of my life so that I can garner all these fragments and accomplish something important with them. Believe me, I don't know how we would have made it as a family when things were so austere for the six of us in a family if we hadn't been careful of the little foxes. I often thought about how many of my neighbors made a lot more money than I did but we still lived in a good neighborhood where I wasn't, didn't feel threatened for my family. It was because we didn't waste anything. We didn't waste any time. We didn't waste any money. We garnered those things. Subscriptions, special phone services, cable TV. I mean, anything in the Bible tells you to have those? No. Is there anything wrong with having those? 
Not if you have enough to take care of that and everything else you have for responsibilities. But if there's not enough to go around, why on earth? You know, I, people talk about being poor and they got a bigger TV than I got. I was at a gas pump one time and a fellow pulled up on the other side of the pump and he says, hey, you got a couple of bucks for gas? I said, you got a better car than I got. Oh, that's my sister's car. I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Well, be careful of waste. Principle number seven, be content. Be content. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, he that dies with the most toys wins? Is that biblical? No. He that dies with the Lord wins. I mean, this life is like this. The fact is, it's, it's probably more like this when it comes to eternity. We're going to live somewhere for eternity. And regardless of how austere things have to be here to do things right, it's a blip. Life is like a vapor, the Bible says. You think about how long it took to live the last 30 years. Seems like it went like that, doesn't it? And the older I get, the faster it goes. But you know what? The older I get, the closer I get to heaven. I'm ready. Uh, I didn't say I was anxious. I said I'm ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I can be here and the Lord used me in some way. But I'll be ready to go whenever he's ready. Being content, Luke twelve fifteen says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. Advertising sure wants you to be unhappy with what you have. They want you to buy that new car, right? They want you to go on that cruise. They want you to spend on those clothes. Uh, fact is, they appeal to the basest sorts of things like our pride and our our uh, selfishness to to sell us those things. First Timothy six six. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. I always found it interesting that more wealthy people committed suicide than poor people. And some of the happiest people I've ever known are people who didn't have hardly anything. You know, money doesn't make anybody happy. It, it's a wonderful tool. I'm so thankful the Lord gave me enough money I could buy an airplane ticket to come to New Zealand from time to time to see my family. Oh, goody. Well, I guess the devil doesn't want me to preach anymore, right? Be content. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct or your behavior be without covetousness. Be content with what things you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If we have the Lord, don't we really have everything? If we have the Lord, we've got everything we need. Things won't do it for us. You know, the, the thing that shows lack of contentment in the U.S., I don't know whether it's like here, but in the U.S., is those credit cards. Living on credit. Borrowing money to do everything. That just shows that I am 
not content with what God gave me. Now, I carry credit cards. I use them all the time. But I pay the bill in full at the end of the month. I don't put it on the credit card unless I've already got the money to take care of the bill. I don't ever carry a balance. You know, these banks, they don't get those tall buildings by money growing on trees. You know where they get it? Out of your pocket as you pay those credit card bills. Why should I give up that kind of resource when I can use it for the Lord? I don't like paying interest. Pay cash. Or let them pay you back when you pay the bill at the end of the month. God knows what we need. We should pray for the things we need and wait till He provides for them. That's faith. I can trust God because He said He loves me. He'll provide for my needs. And if I've got to wait a while for this, it means God wants me to wait for a while for this. Maybe I don't know what He's trying to teach me, but I'm willing for Him to teach me whatever it is. That's faith. Instead of saying, I want it now. Which is what buying on credit does. Philippians 4.19 God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, Esau was a good example of got to have it now. He sold his birthright for one bowl of pottage. How foolish. Proverbs 22.7b says, The borrow is servant to the lender. You know, if you live in debt, you're always a slave. The lender's the boss. When payday comes, if you're going to be scriptural, You've got to do what he says first. And then you can do the rest. You're a lot more flexible, a lot more generous. If you are the boss of what comes in and you can spend it as God wants you to spend it instead of your creditors determining how your money is going to get spent. Don't lose that flexibility. You know, many young couples today, they want to start out in life with a full house furnished just like their mom and dad took 30 years to get. I have a lot of respect for someone when I go to visit in their home and I see a living room that has not a stitch of furniture in it. I know what that says. That says they thought it was more important to not borrow money to have a bunch of things and to wait till they could afford it before they bought it. And i got to respect them for that. Don't borrow money for Christmas. I've heard somebody make the statement, we won't have a Christmas this year because they didn't have money. Is that true? I mean, is Christmas money? Is Christmas presents? I mean, we like them. You know, there were a few Christmases when things were so austere for us, but we didn't spend any money for Christmas. Whatever our kids got, maybe their grandparents got them. Or we made them, or, or something of that nature. And the Christmases after that, they really appreciated what they got. But if we didn't have the money, we weren't going to borrow the money. You know, using debt for things you consume and they're gone is the wrong principle. If you're going to use debt, use it to buy something that if you can't make the payment, at least you can sell what you bought and pay off your debt. That's why it's fine to borrow if you have to to buy a house, if you don't buy too much of a house. Same thing with a car, if you put enough down so that if you get in trouble, you can say, okay. I can sell the car, pay my debt. I don't owe anybody anything. I've fulfilled my scriptural obligations before the Lord. 
Next principle. Number eight, save. Save. Proverbs 21.20. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. Remember the parable of the ten virgins? They were up at night waiting for the bridegroom to come. There'd been a wedding and five of them didn't bring any extra oil and they ran out and they asked the other five if they could borrow some. They said, I'm sorry, we don't have enough to keep our lamps lit and your lamps lit. You're just going to have to go buy more. They had more than they needed with them to take care of the needs. You know, we don't know when unexpected things are going to come, do we? But we can expect that unexpected things will happen. Our cars will break down sometime, right? Because God didn't build the car. Man did, so it's going to fall apart sometime. It's going to wear out. It's going to rust. We're going to have medical problems one of these days. And someday you're going to be my age and, and, boy, my back won't let me go to work anymore. What are you going to do? Whose responsibility is it to take care of that? Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent man foresees evil. That's the broken down car, okay? That's, that's getting decrepit enough to where I can't go to work anymore. He foresees the evil and hides himself. He makes, he makes a provision to make sure that that doesn't find him, that kind of a circumstance. But the simple pass on and are punished. Now ask me, are you prudent or simple? If you're prudent, you won't spend everything you earn. You accumulate for the future. And and our heart's not to be in that. Okay? Our heart's in serving the Lord. But it is our responsibility to provide for our needs. It's my responsibility to provide for my wife. You know, men don't live as long as ladies do, do they, in general. Life insurance companies know that, and they charge less for ladies for life insurance. So I got a plan on her being able to live longer than I do. And and that's my responsibility. That's not my church's responsibility. That's not the government's responsibility. That's not my neighbor's responsibility. It's not even my kids' responsibility. You look at Second Corinthians twelve, fourteen. It says the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now, I mean, something could happen that's terrible and my children would have to take care of me financially. But that's not God's plan. God's plan is I should be working on this. I should foresee this evil, potential evil, and hide myself from that and make provision for it. Principle number nine. I'm going over a little bit here. Often God has already provided a perceived need. God has already provided. You know, some people wait for a windfall. They think, okay, when's my ship coming in, you know? Play the lottery, hoping one of these days I'll strike it big. Or I'll go spend this now because I need a raise down the road and that's going to bail me out of my problem. Uh, or going gambling. Or just stealing things. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to encourage you to go home and read this because we're out of time. But first couple of verses says, At first, a certain woman of the wise of the sons of the prophets 
cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Boy, I'm glad we don't have that kind of economy today. If I get in debt, they come for my children for slavery. So Elisha said to her, What do you need? Is that what he said? No. He said, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. I don't have anything except some little jar of oil. To her, useless, insufficient. Did Elisha give her some money? No. He said, you take that, and here's what you're to do with it. And if you read the story, this is 2 Kings chapter 4. If you read that story, he told her to go borrow pots and pans everywhere, get as many as you can possibly get, take them into your house, close the door, and start pouring into each one of those. And miraculously, just like Jesus breaking the bread, that oil filled every one of those pots. And she finally said, okay, son, I'm ready for another pot. He said, mom, we're out. We filled every last pot we got. And then the Bible says the oil stopped. It stopped flowing. Now, God blessed her with what she already had, right? Many times your solution is already available to you if you just seek God's way out. Her her needs were met to the extent of her obedience. If she got a few pots, she got a few results. If she went all out and got every last pot she could find, she had a tremendous amount. In fact, if she had so much, he said, okay, now you, <clears throat> you go sell that oil, pay off your debt, and you're going to have enough money left for you and your sons to live off of since your husband isn't here to earn a living for you anymore. God met her need with something she already had. It worked to the extent of her obedience. It's interesting. Jesus talked about that story in the New Testament. He told the Israelite people, why is it that there were so many widows in Elisha's day, but only this one had her needs met? She sought God, didn't she? She sought God's solution to her problem. And she obeyed what she was told to do. And God met her need. Jesus also said, you know, there were many lepers in the Old Testament. But the one that was healed was a Syrian, Naaman. Remember him? Why is it that that, that leper was healed but not the others? Because Naaman came to the Lord. He said, Lord, I got a problem. In fact, he didn't even believe what God told him to do. He, he thought, oh, this is foolish. But he did it anyway. And God honored his action because he obeyed what God's servant, he obeyed the word of the Lord in his life, and God blessed him and met his need. So let me ask you, will God bless what you have? Can God bless? Can he make sufficient what you have? Yes, he can. Then the next question is, are you willing to do it his way? Are you willing to seek the scriptures and say, okay, this is how God wants me to handle this situation. I don't know why it's going to work. It looks like... <clears throat> giving this tithe or 
doing this by hand or whatever the situation is might not be the best answer, but if it's biblical, that is the best answer. Use the Bible for your financial principles. And you'll find all of these there and more to guide you. And God will bless you for it according to your obedience. But you've got to know what it says to follow it, right? That's why we're to meditate on it.